And now it's time for Dave's Disney View Podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his Grand Circle Tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all. But he understands its place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. So come along and take a listen to Dave's thoughts about the Walt Disney World Resorts and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On my last podcast, I talked about the extraterrestrial alien encounter that's in Tomorrowland and the Magic Kingdom over in Walt Disney World, and it was the ride or attraction that directly replaced Mission to Mars. Now, I listened to my own podcast, and I realized I think I left out a couple of things, and I wanted to come back and circle around and fill in some of the blanks and tell you the rest of the story and kind of help uh, fill in what else was going on there. Now, I did mention in my last podcast that Phil Hartman had a role in the show, in the original show. And uh, the character of Sir in that second waiting room was actually originally voiced by Phil Hartman. I think I kind of left that vague and didn't tell you the order of things. See, Phil Hartman was originally cast to play that part, and he was called the Tom 2000, and that was short for Technobotic Oratorical Mechanism Series 2000. Now, if you think about the way they kind of put the name together, it's very clever. It was the Tom, as in Tom Morrow, and he was dated as 2000 when this attraction was opening in 1995. So kind of clever the way they put it together. Now, he played a little bit more of a bumbling sort of character and didn't really fit with the overall theme of what the uh, attraction was. So as timing would have it, Phil Hartman actually died in 1998, and that allowed them the opportunity to replace out his character with the Sir character uh, using Tim Curry. So it just kind of worked out to Disney's advantage that they were able to replace Hartman with another character, in this case Tim Curry, to play the same role, but in a much darker sense to make it fit with the overall theme of what the extraterrestrial alien encounter was all about. So why don't we take a listen to what Phil Hartman's character sounded like in the attraction so you can judge for yourself whether it really fit in with the theme or not.
to begin demonstration, activate green button. Okay. Science fiction, science fact. Excess tech is here on Earth for you for a must be. The ultimate mode of transportation. Teleportation. This is the fully operational XS Series 1000. The first in a complete line of personal and commercial teleportation systems capable of sending solid matter and biological life from one place to another instantly. See for yourself the wonders of excess teleportation. Phase one of the process has begun. Disintegration into the molecular components. A famous procedure, I assure you. And now the second phase. The molecules are being to the receiving chamber, where atom by atom we reconstruct the carefree traveler. This phase is especially delicate, but the system is carefully monitored to guarantee clear reception. It seems a slight magnetic anomaly has disturbed the transmission. Let me just check here. Accident, diversity, anomaly. Ah, not to worry. I simply boost the power to compensate. Now, another thing about the uh, attraction itself that I didn't mention was that it opened for a soft opening in 1994. And during that soft opening, there was a few guests that were invited to come and, and take it in and enjoy it, and they took feedback from those guests. Michael Eisner also went and saw it in 1994, and he was not impressed with the overall theme of it. He wanted it to be a little more intense, so when he, dialed up, when he asked them to dial up the intensity, they actually closed the attraction for a few months and reopened it in early 1995. So there was a short window in there when it had a slightly different theme than it does or did uh, when it was open for most of its run. 
Now, in the version that Michael Eisner saw before it was actually open to the general public, the director from Excess Technology uh, was beamed into the showroom but was locked in and was banging on the walls to get out uh, as you were leaving the show, the show building. So the alien got out and they got him back in and then the director was finally beamed in and he was banging on the walls. And it just kind of added a kind of a silly ending almost to the show, which is a little more Disney-like, but Michael Eisner didn't like that. So that part was actually cut out and they removed it back to you were just leaving after the alien was returned. And two other things I didn't, that I didn't specifically mention, uh, the director of the show, they actually had a show director, was Jerry Reese. Now, Jerry was also the director of the 1982 movie Tron. And if you really look at the video and think about the attraction, you can kind of see that Tron-inspired sort of imagery in there, where it's sort of a little more, not whimsical, but dark. And, but looking at the future in some way. It's kind of clever in its own strange sort of a way, and it makes sense. And the musical score, I said there was a large musical score. Um, The musical score was actually done by Richard Bellis, who's a notable Emmy Award-winning composer who's done a number of television shows and uh, movies. So uh, Richard was actually the, uh, the person who scored all the music. Now, with all of that out of the way, there was one more important thing that I completely neglected to mention. For some reason, I left it out of my last podcast. I'm not entirely sure how I left it out, but I did. So I wanted to come back and at least talk about this particular part of it. See, the thing is that Disney, when they were thinking about Mission to Mars, by the late 1980s, there was already a discussion underway at the Walt Disney Company that Mission to Mars was a totally dated attraction and they needed to do something else. There was this interest in coming up with something called Tomorrowland 2055. Now, as you may recall, Walt Disney always thought about growing and changing and never staying the same and never standing pat with what he's got. So Tomorrowland was a vision of the future when he first opened the park in 1955. As he thought about things that he could enhance and create and do, he was always thinking about new things that he could put in there. He he kind of figured that Tomorrowland would always evolve into emerging technologies and other things and become more than just the static look into the future from 1955. Disney took that to heart, and over the years they tried to do some of that for the first at least 10 to 15 years that they were operating uh, in Disneyland. Then when Walt Disney died, it became a little more challenging to do that because budgets were tough, and they were trying to build this... uh, Walt Disney World project in Florida, and they were spending a lot of capital on that. So it was a lot harder to grow the Tomorrowland concept and make it something that they really wanted to. They had to really stop and think about where they were going to put their expenditures because they didn't have enough. When Michael Eisner came on board, he decided that he wanted to grow the company on the whole. So he was looking at an idea called Tomorrowland 2055, where he was going to grow Tomorrowland into something much greater and much grander that would actually encompass a lot of these things and ideas. Now, he wanted to do it on a reasonable budget and do some things that would really make it intriguing. But he had some some clever things that he was trying to accomplish. So among those things, and this would have been, you know, like shortly after he took over the company, you know, this would have been in like 86, 87, maybe 88, something like that, where he was looking at some of the attractions that he could change and, and put his own stamp on and make them more interesting. So one of the attractions he targeted was Mission to Mars. Mission to Mars had become dated, wasn't really all that thrilling, it you know, kind of lost its luster over the years. He saw it and kind of went, meh, from what I understand. So he thought it was a great opportunity to rebrand it. So he gave the Imagineers the task of going out there and trying to find something that would make it more interesting. Now along the way, the Imagineers reached out to George Lucas. Yes, that George Lucas. Lucas had just released The Return of the Jedi and was the uh, hot commodity at that time. And they thought he had a really bright mind for something that might be space-oriented. And so they came to him and turned to him for an idea. 
Now, several Imagineers had come up with the idea of using the 1979 movie Aliens as sort of the premise for this. Now, if you've ever seen Aliens with Sigourney Weaver, this is a really kind of scary movie. It's the one that kind of set the bar for what horror films or space films in that genre should be. I think other films have tried to achieve that, but this one really set a bar that was a little bit different. In space, no one can hear you scream. That's official. Alien is tailored for deaf people. Alien. That's what they do anyway. All right, so Alien is a 1979 Ridley Scott classic. If you've ever seen a movie where it's like, oh, we're in space and this creature's coming after us, they're probably trying to do what Ridley Scott did with Alien. Alien takes place on this mining ship. It's a crew of like seven people. They have a cargo of a bunch of ore. They're coming back to Earth. They get a distress signal from this planet. They're like, oh, we gotta go check it out. It's not like something's gonna latch onto someone's face and bust an alien out of his chest, you know. So then they go check it out. Now we have our movie in which a monster's trying to kill him. Right, so it's really tough to review movies like this because they're so loved by people. There are people are like, dude, this is the classic Alien. And I have to review this movie with objective eyes, as if it's not a classic, it's just a movie, I gotta review it. I'm not gonna trash the movie Alien, it does not deserve to be trashed. However, there are parts where you're like, this is boring. It just is. The first few shots in the movie, nothing is happening, there's no dialogue, it's just camera shots of gear and helmets and empty seats. And you're like, all right, cool, come on, let's, let's, let's make something happen. I don't care what, it, bacteria can go after the people at this point. I just want something to kill someone. However, the flip side of that is Alien does a really good job setting up the tone. When you go into Alien, you know it's about a creature that kills people. So this whole time you're like, oh man, when's it, when are people gonna die? When are people gonna die? And as for the year 2012, it's cool to watch the movie Alien because you see that shit from Prometheus. And then you see things happen in the movie Alien, you hear dialogue and you're like, ah, that's good. Prometheus is gonna tie right into this. I can't wait to see that happen. You get excited, you know? That being said, Alien does a good job at winding up the tension like a guitar string, you know? You know it's gonna snap soon, but it takes a while to do it. It's really slow to build. It's like a slow movie mixed with scenes that are so intense and awesome. Like the scene, you know, after the facehugger grabs onto the guy and he's like, oh man, I could really go for something to eat right now. I was just like, oh, here it comes. And when that alien pops out of his chest, dude, it is, it's so violent. Like you've seen aliens pop out of people's chest in Alien movies or alien versus predator movies or whatever movies but nothing makes you feel like holy sh that is the worst thing that can happen to a human being like the movie alien i mean if i'm given the choice of having the alien pop out of my stomach or just crunch my face off when it's all full grown i'll take crunch my face off any day one thing i like is the dialogue the way the characters interact with each other and just kind of small talk with each other and jab at each other you're like oh they're real people so many times in movies like this just like oh yeah all these people are just there to die in alien the characters were three-dimensional they were real people so when they died it was monumental you're like i'm losing my crew here let's blow this thing out of an airlock already i don't want to see more people die you're on their side you want them to survive unlike most movies like this where you're like oh yeah dude go ahead and crawl through that vent i can't wait that's the main thing that sets alien apart from most movies that have come after it that try to replicate it it just they don't they're just horror movies that take place in space i totally forgot ian holm was an alien i knew he was an alien when lord of the rings came out and then i it just slipped my mind so when i watched the movie i'm like dude ian holm is young of course he's the scientist that wants to study this thing you know no spoilers or anything like that but you know he's just kind of a shady person so alien does a good job at being a very intense movie you want these people to survive you do not want the alien to kill them However, the pacing and the slow scenes are really slow. However, I will say Alien is a good time. No alcohol required. I know a lot of you are like, <gasps> You didn't give it awesome-tacular? But it is what it is. That's my rating for it. So it was a pretty scary movie, I'd have to say. And uh, it really was kind of terrifying in a lot of ways. 
but really, really well done. And I appreciate the fact that Disney wanted to take this. Now, this is not Walt's Disney in this case, because there's some different things here that they were thinking of. They were actually thinking outside the box and trying to make it the darkest, scariest ride they could think of. But again, not physically scary, just psychologically kind of scary, like the movie was. So that was kind of the concept, was to take that and work with the Nostromo. You'd be aboard the Nostromo and the alien would be there. Now, many designers in the early stages wanted to use the alien from the movie Alien simply due to the fact that so many people had seen the movies. Some Imagineers reportedly didn't like the idea and thought it would be too scary for the Magic Kingdom. When they approached George Lucas about it, he agreed with them. It was probably a little too scary for the Magic Kingdom. Eisner had wanted to kind of go down this path. But Lucas had gone back to Eisner and talked to Eisner and said, no, it's probably not right for the Magic Kingdom, and they rethemed it slightly as a result of that. Then Lucas was tapped to be the producer of the show. Now, George Lucas' company, Industrial Light and Magic, um, did some consulting on the design and some of the uh, showpieces that were there. But Lucas himself never really showed up to help and was a producer really in only name. He only had that piece to the puzzle where he helped design up the overall show and the theme of the show. He had too many other projects he was working on and too many other things he was doing. So it's an interesting connection that George Lucas was connected to the Disney company much earlier in the process. Now, you may ask, why George Lucas? Well, it had something to do with the success of his uh, Star Wars franchise, but it had more to do with what he was working on at the time, which was Star Tours, which was the speeder uh, to Endor that he was creating for Disneyland, and later was used at uh, Walt Disney World in the Hollywood Studios. But originally, the concept at that time was to create something that was a motion simulator. And here we were talking about the alien encounter that's kind of a similar thing, where it's not quite a motion simulator, but you're doing some things where you have a large-scale motion area. And this is an interesting side note, because if you look at the title of the uh, show, it was called The Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter. And in most of the Disney marketing material, it was just called The Alien Encounter. They kind of left off the word extraterrestrial. And there was, this was intentional. This was because they wanted to tie it back to the 1979 Alien film and have that connection to it, because that was originally the connection they were working on when they were building the production. So kind of clever the way it all kind of played out. And in fact, in some of the early promotional materials that they put out, the alien that they used actually closely resembled the alien from the movie. So kind of funny how that all kind of played out. When you look at the alien creature they finally used in the production here of Extraterrestrial Alien Encounter, you'll see that it has some similarities to the alien from the movie, though it's really not the same alien uh, by the time they got around to actually making the prop for it and selling toys and other things. Uh, it really wasn't the same alien. But kind of funny how they worked it out, and it, and it kind of looked like the same alien as they were doing their development. Now, kind of following along that theme, the Imagineers had come up with a whole storyline that the monster was going to be the same character, and Excess Technologies was going to be the Wayland Yulani Corporation, which was the same corporation that was used in the alien movies. So when the idea for the alien was scrapped for the Tomorrowland ride that they were trying to create, the Imagineers did decide that they could incorporate it in something else. At the same time, they were working on attractions for Disney's MGM Studios theme park. They had a couple of attractions that they had in mind for things they were going to do, like, for example, the Indiana Jones Epic Stunt Spectacular. They also had a soundstage where they were going to show you how to make uh, sound effects for a movie. They were going to do some things where they were going to show you how to uh, superimpose things into films and to make films that, uh, that seem genuine. And they had this idea for a great movie ride, and they were going to take you through some of the great movie classics of all time and let you experience them in some way. So they had this idea for a couple of different things. They were going to take you through um, some sort of Indiana Jones part of the exhibit. They were going to take you through uh, some westerns that might involve Clint Eastwood or John Wayne. 
They were going to take you through something that was like a mummy curse. Then they also thought about, what if we took people aboard the Nostromo and uh, had people there and able to experience what Sigourney Weaver's character as Ripley experienced on board the Nostromo? And that became the idea for that part of the great movie ride experience. So nothing is ever lost at Disney, as we know. They continue to evolve the ideas and take it to the next thing if it doesn't work for one thing. They'd already thought about the concept, and I believe they had already negotiated for the rights to the film to be able to use it in a production like that. So it worked out pretty well. They were able to use it and uh, leverage it in a way that I think works pretty well. Unfortunate, it's unfortunate in some ways that it didn't work out in the extraterrestrial alien encounter, but it did work and does work pretty well in the great movie ride. And I understand the great movie ride at some point may be uh, subject to some changes as well, but it's a really cool way to kind of experience the movie Alien in some way. In terms of the show itself, it actually featured two complete show sets, just like Mission to Mars and the Moon Ride did. Uh, they were offset by fi- at a five-minute interval on their start times uh, to give the attraction a steadier flow. So each, every five minutes, either the left or the right room would open to let people in. Each theater had approximately 180 guests, and so in a typical two-hour operation, the show might be seen by 2,340 visitors in a two-hour span, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, It is a people-eater in that sense. Some have called it the most horrifying ride that Disney ever produced. Many of the positive reviews of this ride expressed the awe that Disney could pull off such a subtle, scary adult experience in the parks that didn't involve Pleasure Island. One review said of it, The alien ride, or extraterrestrial alien encounter, involved weaving staff members and pre-taped sequences and theater shows all together for a deeply immersive experience. The storyline's standard blah-blah. There's a greedy corporation who has some new transportation technology and they accidentally transport the alien into the showroom, but the theater part was the real above and beyond. Audiences sat in the harness seats in total darkness once the show got underway and stayed in darkness for about 10 minutes while the special effects scared the bejesus out of every man, woman, and child. Blood dripping on foreheads, alien tentacles all over your body, not a Disney experience as you'd normally think of one. So of course it had to be squashed by the parent brigade. There were almost immediate complaints waged on the company for years about that particular attraction. From the moment it opened in really 1995 until about 2001, the complaints were just pouring in, which on the one hand shows that they really did produce a powerful attraction. But on the other hand, there was a problem there because this is the Magic Kingdom and you want people to be happy and you want guests to be able to come in. Children under seven years old weren't allowed in the attraction or under 48 inches tall, and they warned children under 12 to have a parent with them. Understandable, given the nature of the show, though after you kind of watched it once, you kind of got into it a little bit, and it was a lot of fun. Disney was trying to decide what to do with the show sometime in the early 2000s. They went back and forth about a couple of different ideas and how to close it and what to do with it. One of the things that kind of happened really had nothing to do with Disney. Actor Jeffrey Jones, the man who played Elsie Clinch, had recently been convicted of soliciting child pornography, which is kind of a problem for Disney and their image. So they decided that it was probably in their best interest to go ahead and close the attraction, given everything that was going on. So by early 2003, Disney made the decision, the fateful decision, to go ahead and close the extraterrestrial alien encounter for good and to replace it with something a little more tame. Now here's where the challenge came in. They decided to replace it with something that was a lot more tame. They decided to uh, replace it with uh, Stitch's Great Escape. Now the Lilo and Stitch movie, it's an okay film. It's not great. It didn't really do well with the box office. It didn't really do well with sales. But Stitch was kind of a popular character. He had sort of a charm to him, and people liked him, so it made sense to create an attraction around Stitch, I guess. It didn't really wow me that they wanted to come out with a Stitch-themed attraction. But, you know, you take Disney at their word, and you say, well, they've done a lot of good things in the past, and maybe this one will be good. 
So they came up with Stitch's Great Escape, which essentially told the story of Stitch being captured and transported, using the same cartoon characters that they had in the movie, in the pre-show scene. And then they took you into an area where they had a policeman who was still the Sir character, but now had a new voice, giving a slightly different spiel about how they transport aliens uh, who are prisoners. And, you know, that's all good, and it's clever enough anyway. And then you go into the main chamber, and instead of being the alien in there, it's now Stitch. And Stitch gets out, and he goes around the room, and he talks about, you know, uh, terrorizing the princesses and whatever else. Yeah, that's great. I have to say that in my opinion, this is one of the worst attractions Disney has ever done. It felt like they just kind of took everything that was already there and just painted over it with a stitch brush. Not that they really did anything clever and unique. Not that they did anything interesting. They just kind of laid in these cartoons where everything else was, changed the Sura character, and then just put Stitch in the, in the tube and then had him say some silly things. It doesn't really work. I think it's just, a, in my opinion, it's a terrible attraction. I really don't like it, and I don't like what they did with it. It felt like it was just too cheap and too commercialized in some ways, and it really just doesn't come across in the right way. I was hoping for something just a little bit more. And it's been there now for like 10 years, and it's just amazing to me how, you know, you go into it, and you can get in, and you can get out. You know, it's, there's really not much wait for it. You certainly don't need a fast pass for it. Look, I'm not even going to play the audio from the, from the attraction. That's how mediocre I think it is. It's not even worth playing the audio for you because it's just kind of a waste of time. But I will just tell you that, you know, at least when it came to creating the Stitch audio animatronic, they had to think about how to make it move in a way that made sense. This is sort of that midpoint. They've created audio animatronics in the last few years that have been fully articulated and can do some things that are pretty remarkable. But in this version that was actually created around 2003 for opening in 2004, this audio animatronic is remarkably sophisticated. His ears wiggle, all of his hands move. He's got multiple hands. His eyes blink, his teeth open and close, his mouth opens and closes, you know, so he can do some articulated movements with his face, much like you see in the cartoon. So this was a huge leap forward in the animatronic space, and that was a more remarkable thing than the attraction itself. It's almost, and I say almost, worth going in there just to see that particular audio animatronic in motion, because it's remarkable what they were able to do with it. It's pretty neat that they were able to kind of come up with something that was that incredible in terms of how it, uh, how it moved. And it really was one of the most sophisticated things that they'd ever done. Now, they did keep the uh, binaural sound. They did keep a lot of the features of the uh, extraterrestrial alien encounter. So if you want to catch the nature of what the alien encounter was all about, you could go in that attraction and kind of close your eyes and just imagine Stitch isn't there and get the feel for it because it kind of still does capture that essence of it anyway. So there you go. That's my take on the extraterrestrial alien encounter that became Stitch's Great Escape. I, you know, I don't recommend Stitch's Great Escape as some place to go unless maybe you just want to go inside and get out of the heat for a little while because there's literally no lines to get in there. But the Monsters, Inc. Laugh Floor across from it is a much better attraction, and, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very clever the way they've done it. I haven't heard any rumors recently about anything they're planning on doing with Stitch's Great Escape, but I have to imagine somewhere in the uh, Disney lineage there's probably some thoughts about replacing it with something that's a little bit more sophisticated, interesting, or that could capture the nature of something maybe spacey-oriented or Tomorrowland-oriented or whatever. Well, that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we really can do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View Podcast. Now, please exit the moving podcast. The walkway is moving at the same speed as your podcast. Kindly take small children by the hand and watch your head and step. If you have questions, thoughts, 
or would just like to ask Dave a question, please send an email to davesdisneyview at gmail.com. You can always find Dave's Disney View on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest. The show notes for this podcast can be found on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. Original music you hear in this podcast is courtesy of Sound A Music. You'll find a link to the latest Disney-related autism awareness event on the show notes page. We also encourage you to check out Dave's iPhone apps. There are a couple of Disney-related apps, including a Hidden Mickey's app and a pin trading app. 